Welcome to Mind and Soul Matters. I'm Farah Feeney. Through conversations with everyday people, Mind and Soul Matters, a Baha'i-inspired podcast, aims to broaden our understanding of mental health and spirituality and to deepen our insights into the challenges and meaning of our lives. Our guest today is Dr. Duane Varan, one of my favourite public speakers and a pioneer in media research and the future of television. Duane is a former professor at Murdoch University and currently the CEO of Media Science, a world-leading audience research firm in the United States. You might be thinking, what's the connection to mental health and spirituality? Well, I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with Duane on actualizing our potential, drawing on his role as an educator and exploring how education can open our mind and elevate our soul. Welcome, Duane. It's great to see you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Duane, growing up, I remember being so inspired by all your travel adventures. To help introduce yourself, can you share some of the stories from your travels as a youth? <laughs> well, I, I was very lucky as a young person because I did travel so much, but it was also travel in a very purposeful kind of way. Hmm. Um, and uh, I had no shortage of adventures for sure. Um, the background to how that came about is when I was 16, um, I did a, a, a religious pilgrimage to Israel. And it was a period of soul searching, trying to kind of like decide what I want to do with my life. You know, it was one of those moments of really trying to get my bearings, um, try to figure out my journey. And um, at the time, of course, the Iranian revolution had just happened. And so there was a very active campaign of, of genocide. I mean, there still is 40 years later. Mm. Uh, but, um, you know, it was a period of particular trial uh, for the Baha'i community. And, uh, you know, as Baha'is, we had friends, family, uh, you know, who, who were suffering. And so it was a very difficult period. Um, when, at the very start of my trip, um, my auntie by marriage had actually been arrested by the regime, uh, told to recant her faith, and she refused. So the very first night when I arrived in Israel, I had this dream, and it was a very disturbing, soul-stirring kind of like dream. And in my dream, um, I was arrested by the regime and I was taken into this room and I was told to recant my faith and I refused. And so the regime um, brought my auntie before me and they placed her on her knees and they said, if you don't recant your faith, we will execute your aunt. And I didn't recant. And they took out this big silver sword and they sliced her head off in front of me. And this river of blood came gushing out and it it broke the doors down to that to the the room that we were in and it just flooded into the streets. Um, many days later, uh, towards the end of my my stay in Israel, actually, um, in fact, on the last night that I was there. Um, we received word that my auntie had been executed. And in fact, she had been executed on that same night that I had had my, my dream. Wow. Um, 
And uh, of course, I was um, distraught, and, mm. you know, sad and angry. Um, and I remember sitting uh, overlooking, you know, the bay of uh, in, in Haifa and just crying all night long and saying, you know, I have to do something about this. What can I do? And that night I made a decision. And the decision that I made was that I was going to continue her work and that I had to do that by traveling and, and um, you know, seeing if I could make the world a better place. And I, I was very lucky because the Baha'i community um, in the United States at the time had some really amazing uh, campaigns to reach out to uh, improving the plight of indigenous communities in particular. So there was a very immediate vehicle for me to channel my energy into. And so what started was um, me traveling to these uh, Native American reservations where these Baha'i communities had projects. And what was so amazing about these projects is that what they recognized was that the main problem was not material. It wasn't about whether they didn't have you know, working water or good water or good quality water or health care or these things. Those were all problems. But the core of the problem was actually self-esteem. You know, it was that belief that they could solve their problems instead of this dependency on others, which which made the problem worse. Because even though you were dealing with a material problem, psychologically, spiritually, the plight of these indigenous communities was actually becoming worse in, in, this, in, in this interaction. So the kind of projects that I participated in, we would go and we would, some Baha'i youth would go and meet with the local uh, indigenous elders, and we would say, you know the problems of your community best, how can we help you? Mm. And they would come up with things, and, and oftentimes the projects they come up with were completely inconsequential. But the point was that far more important than that actual you know, project itself was actually building not only their confidence, but their community's confidence in their capacity to address their problems. Right. So this approach was something which had me on every single holiday. In fact, every week I would typically work and go to uni three days a week, Tuesday through Thursday. And on Friday I would be somewhere and on Monday night I'd be coming back. And so I traveled a lot between my summers, my winter breaks, my spring breaks, you know, during the week. Uh, it, it just led to lots and lots and lots of adventures. And when I finished my master's degree. I took off two years. I spent one year sailing in the Pacific, visiting, you know, these very remote Baha'i communities in these far-flung islands. And I spent another year traveling down the Amazon. Um, so I had a lot of adventures. So mm. many of the stories that you probably remember from those years are those stories of those, uh, of those adventures. That lasted for probably a good decade. So there was a good decade of that kind of travel before life's realities with, you know, ma marriage, mortgage, kids, yeah. <laughs> all those other things led to a little bit of a change in my pace of life. Right. Well, I had no idea that that was the background to your travel stories. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That's absolutely amazing. Uh, now, Duane, let's talk about your career as an educator. So we're fast forwarding a little bit. You were the recipient of the Australian Prime Minister's Award for University Teacher of the Year, one of the most prestigious teaching awards in Australia, if not the most prestigious. How would you describe your teaching philosophy and how does it relate to this concept of actualizing or realizing our potential? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, like many people, um, you know, I got my my PhD, my degree, um, and then you go into a career as an educator. You haven't had a single course on how, you know, teaching you how to teach a, a course. Mm. Um, university education is really about research. You're trained in how to do research. But nowhere along the line does anybody even give you a single pointer on what your career is going to be like as an educator. I, I, I got very lucky again early in my career um, in, in finding a quote that transformed my career as an educator. Right. And this quote was actually not about education. Um, it was actually the Baha'i statement to the World Social Summit. I think it was maybe... 1993. I'm trying to remember what year it was, but it was around that era in the early 90s. This was a one of these United Nations conferences where leaders from around the world get together. Now we have those like about the environment, for example. This was actually about global poverty. So all these leaders got together and parallel to the leaders conference is a non, non-governmental organization, an NGO conference of development agencies and people who are also combating these issues or dealing with these issues. So the Baha'i community um, had presented a statement at the NGO conference um, and uh, this statement was called The Prosperity of Humankind. And it was a document which deals with what does development mean mm-hmm. and how do we go about you know, facilitating more effective development to help combat global poverty. I read a sentence in that statement that was life transforming for me. And it's been life transforming for me many times over because it made a difference in my career as an educator. Later on, when I became a CEO, the same quote changed my approach to how I approached management. And this has been, this is a quote that was truly life transforming for me. I can't wait to hear it, Dwayne. (laughs) So defining development. Right. Right. It's in that context of development. And it defines development as Cultivating environments conducive to releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness. So I'm going to say that again because there's a lot packed in that idea. Cultivating environments conducive to releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness. Now, of course, this was in the context of development, but what I realized when I read it was that's also my creed for teaching. That became my creed as an educator. My job as a teacher was to cultivate environments conducive to releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness. So there's two really big ideas in that quote. The first is that my job as a teacher is to create the right environment that allows for people to actualize their potential. So there was a lot that I did that I changed about my approach to teaching with the recognition that it would improve the environment that empowered people to achieve their potential. So let me give you a few examples so Mm. that that I can illustrate this. Um, One concept in education is the idea of the bell curve. Right. Mm-hmm. So you expect that your grade distribution at the end of the semester will look like a, a bell curve where, you know, you have a few high distinctions, you know, a few fails and the bulk of people end up in the middle. And in fact, in Australia, we enforce that idea. 
Um, we have something called the Board of Examiners in the university, which is in a department. Everybody gets together and literally everybody's grade distribution is distributed to everybody else to look at. And the idea is that if you don't have a normal distribution, like what is wrong with you? So we have a system which cultivates this idea of this bell curve normal distribution. To me, the biggest sign of failure as an educator would be if you ended up with a, a normal distribution. What does that mean? That means that we expect that there's a certain natural talent that exists, which should look like a bell curve. And that if I did absolutely nothing but say, okay, everybody, here's your book, you know, let's turn up on exams. I guarantee you, you know, I would end up with something which looks like a, a normal distribution. But my job as an educator is to beat those odds. My job is to actually help people rise beyond a normal distribution. Mm. So I had one semester where I had 16 students and out of the 16, 15 had high distinctions and one had a distinction. And I was horribly distraught that I couldn't get that 16th student up to the standard of the high distinction. Mm. Now, immediately when people hear that story, they assume, well, you know, you must have just given away the grades. It must have been. But actually, it wasn't the case. The standard was so high. If I went to my lab at three o'clock in the morning, 15 out of 16 students were in that lab. Wow. You know, like at three o'clock in the morning, my entire class would be busy working. Mm. And and there were also little things like um, I had a teaching assistant, like, you know, like many you know, many professors, you have an assistant to help you with the class. And normally you hire a grad student, you know, to be that teaching assistant. But I had it as a policy that the person that I would hire would be the person from the previous class who did the most to help their colleagues. Mm. So um, I've created a system, a culture where people actually have an incentive far from trying to compete with the person sitting next to them. They're actually trying to do whatever they can to help the person because that's what we are rewarding in our classroom environment. So people were helping each other, which just made the environment so much more powerful than it could have been if everybody was dependent upon, you know, what I could provide as a teacher. Mm. Um, people, because the philosophy was, I don't grade to a curve, I grade to a standard. And as long as you meet the standard associated with the designated grade, that's the grade that you're going to get. So everybody had an incentive for helping each other rise up to the challenge. They were competing with themselves. They weren't competing with each other. So these are just examples of, I mean, there were a lot of things I did along these lines, constantly asking myself, how could I improve the environment? Right, to bring out the best in every student. To, to, to empower people to be in a supportive environment where they could achieve their potential, mm-hmm. where they had the kind of support that could be available potentially to help them. Mm. Then there's the second part of the quote, which is this idea of uh, releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness. Now, that that is even more important than the... Uh, than the first. Um, You know, in in Baha'i philosophy, um, education is not like a banking transaction. It's not like somebody has knowledge that they are depositing into a child's account. The concept is actually very child-centered. It's Mm student-centered. The concept, the the quote that we have from Baha'u'llah is, regard man as a mind rich in gems of inestimable value. Mm. 
Education can alone cause it to reveal its treasures and enable mankind to benefit therefrom. In other words, the concept is that the power exists within the person and that our job as an educator is to release that potential. Well, I love that. It's I such a powerful yeah. idea. So um, what this meant for me in the context of my teaching was that I recognized that I was not the key to their education. It wasn't that I was this wise sage who had knowledge to impart. I mean, I, I would certainly, you know, as part of that support in that environment, provide what I could. But far more important was the recognition that the real power lay within the student. Mm. That philosophy ultimately was the philosophy that I took to my class at Murdoch. And that class at Murdoch ended up getting so good with what were truly uh, coming in average students um, because I picked average students. I picked hungry students. Mm. So the students who came into the class were the hungriest. Sometimes they were barely passing. But by the end of that semester, they became superstars. So the class was so good that literally people like the BBC would pay all expenses to fly my entire class to London for the opportunity to work with our students. That was the transformation mm. which we brought. And that was the basis ultimately for what uh, for, for the uh, for the teacher prize that I got, the Prime Minister's Award. Right. So if you had to summarise it, Dwayne, what were the, the key factors that you think transformed that group? So the first was the recognition and the belief in their potential. And at the start of the semester... And for some of them, that might have been the first time that someone recognised and had that belief in them. Absolutely. You can imagine um, you're barely passing. Mm. somebody comes to you and believes in you mm. and believes that you have this enormous capacity. Now, it was scaffolded. The semester was scaffolded. So we started with an easy task and it got it elevated to a, a more challenging task. But within a few weeks, these students were astonished by what they could achieve. Right. And it was that process of them seeing this transformation that would occur because they were willing to engage in this journey mm-hmm. and they, they had somebody uh, who believed in them. Right. And that combination of hard work, uh, belief, um, seeing results, the results are incredibly fulfilling, right? Mm. You, you achieve something. If you feel good about what you achieved, mm, and so motivates you build you on to, strength. Mm, yeah. 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 So they had, you had that belief in them, which then translated to them having the belief in themselves, which then gave positive results. And then that became uh, a cycle where they would then be motivated more and more to realize their potential. Yeah. And each other. It wasn't just mm-hmm. themselves. They saw their friends in the class and they saw the work that they were producing. Like there was this, this it, was, it, was, it was a process which feeds on itself. Yeah. And Duane, how do you think individuals can take that and apply it to their own life? So it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason it's challenging is because we don't typically live in environments where we have a supportive culture. Mm-hmm. We... Many of us actually work in environments where managers think that the best way that they can get things done is by actually putting us down. Mm-hmm. And so, so you're, you're kind of like a salmon swimming against the tide to, to achieve your potential because far from being in an environment where people are supporting you and encouraging you, the average person's experience is actually quite 
different to that. And we're in environments which are very competitive, typically, um, you know, uh, you know, where we're just constantly feeling bad about ourselves instead of feeling good. We're not, instead of building on strengths, we're building on defeats. And that just kind of like the same way that you can kind of like elevate and go up. You can also descend and go down when you're just looking downward and seeing defeat after defeat. So it's a cycle that we have to break out of. And um, certainly it is possible to do, you know, with minimal support, uh, but it requires you to become motivated more from within rather than being motivated from outside. So that's that's a challenge. It's a huge challenge. It's not a simple thing. It's mm -hmm. a great challenge. You know, it, it's much easier to be motivated by the forces around you than it is to be motivated from the forces within. I guess from that one, one thing that I'm taking away is that trying to surround ourselves with people who do provide that support, who, who recharge us, who energize us, who bring that energy into our life that helps us uh, self-actualize. Absolutely. And, and again, on the journey within, you know, in terms of releasing those forces, you know, through your own sheer willpower and volition, um, what you read, you know, what you listen to, uh, that can have a huge effect. Um, you know, you can listen to a lot like I find often the news these days is actually very, you know, very destructive in terms of like, you know, getting you angry and getting you upset and kind of like cultivating those kind of emotions within you. Or you can, you know, when you read the Baha'i writings, the Baha'i writings are very uplifting. They're very self-affirming. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're about transformation. They recognize that you have this enormous potential, you know, so, so you have choices that you make as well in terms of, you know, the diet you feed yourself of, uh, you know, how you're, 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 uh, you know, cultivating, mm. uh, of course it's better if we can be in an environment which is supportive, mm. but, um, but the reality is that many of us are not, and we have to fare the best we can mm. with the hand that we're, you know, we're, we're often dealt. Mm. So thinking about what you've shared so far, in terms of when we as parents or in different relationships that we are, we can try to think of the best in other people to bring that out. And also then in terms of our own life surrounding ourselves, whether that's with choices that we make in terms of the people around us or the things that we do and in terms of spirituality, that whatever spirituality means to us or the faith that we have tapping into those aspects which then help us to self-actualize. Absolutely. So the same way that you could think of this quote as being a great quote uh, for education mm -hmm. and for development. You could also say it's a great quote for parenting, mm. right? Your challenge as a parent is to create the environment conducive to releasing the limitless potentiality in your kid. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, again, um, the focus really needs to be on building strength. So it's hard as a parent. Your kids do things that, you know, are not right and you want to you know, uh, you, you want to help them understand that what they're doing is right. But you need to understand that uh, in the same way, there are windows of opportunity to build on strengths, to help kids believe in themselves and in their potential. Mm. And so those are the challenges that we face as, as parents. And, and later in life, it became my challenge as a manager. So the same quote that I could apply to what the good job, you know, what the, the challenge is for a teacher, it's the same for a manager. The job of a good manager is to cultivate in the workplace, if you will, an environment conducive to releasing the limitless potentialities latent in human consciousness. Mm. It's the same challenge again. Yeah. But, but I had a lot of difficulty 
difficulties in putting that into work, into management. It took me a number of years. When we've talked about self-actualization, and I know we haven't gone down the track of sort of psychology theories, but as a psychologist, it has, when I hear those words, it takes me back to my lectures years ago and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, because self-actualization is something that's mentioned in that model. And just to briefly outline what I'm referring to here is a, is a pyramid. Maslow's, as you probably do know, Duane, but for our listeners, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a pyramid where our basic needs are at the bottom of that pyramid and there are things like our um, physiological and safety needs, our food, shelter, water, job security and then once those needs are met according to this model then it goes to the next level which is relationships, that sense of belonging, feeling loved and self-esteem and then at the very top of that pyramid is self-actualization. So according to that theory it assumes that all these other things things have been all these other our needs have been met that we live in a place where we feel safe where we have food we have shelter we have um, a nurturing environment which is some of the things that you've actually touched on Duane and then we can reach that self-actualization do you think from your role as an educator and what you have seen as a parent with colleagues in the environment that you live in do you think that self-actualization can be achieved when some of those other aspects are not there. And particularly, it's making me think of at the moment with COVID-19. Some people don't feel safe and secure. Uh, Even job security might be an issue or connection to other people. So in an environment where some of those other basic needs aren't met, what does self-actualization look like? You know, at the time Maslow wrote that, the world was not the kind of world I think that we live in today. I I mean, I say that in that, um, you know, uh, getting to a point where your basic needs were met was a bigger challenge than I think it is today. Like today, I mean, especially in a society such as Australia, you know, um, it's less about our ability to have, you know, food, shelter, certainly on the the psychological dimensions of life, you know, I think everybody uh, probably, you know, finds it much more challenging to be loved. And, you know, like in terms of our emotional needs, we still have enormous challenges. But I think in terms of material, uh, there is an overemphasis in our societies on the material dimensions of life at the expense of the psychological, emotional, spiritual dimensions. Mm. We put a lot of time, effort and energy into kind of like the pursuit of meeting our material needs. Um, but we, you know, we don't, we don't systematically go about addressing our emotional needs. We're reactive. We're very proactive when it comes to figuring out what we can do to improve our material uh, condition. But we're very reactive when it comes to our emotional, psychological, spiritual. And we really need to think about how to become more proactive because in our kind of world, that's actually what matters the most in terms of achieving something like happiness. And I say that especially in Australia because Mm -hmm. we're a very egalitarian kind of society. And there's not a lot of great benefit that comes with, you know, there comes a point where your basic needs are met. And then beyond that, the improvements that you see are really at the margins, not mm. not kind of like radical changes in your in your in your happiness and and well being. So and they can be at the cost of our happiness and, and they well-being can. if Absolutely. the focus is too much on the bottom of that pyramid, where we're t- focusing too much on getting making sure we have 
all those physiological needs met after a certain time, it actually then interferes with our happiness. Absolutely. So, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a question of, you know, re-examining our priorities. Mm. Um, and, uh, we can all be in situations where we're trying to explore what self-actualization means for us, mm-hmm. how we can achieve our potential instead of allowing others to define what our potential is or should be. Mm-hmm. Most of us are reactive in life. We're allowing, we're giving that power to somebody else to define who we should be, what we should do, when in actual fact, that potential is in our own control. We have that command if we choose to. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Duane. We've taken so much from what you've shared and applying it to our personal life, to our families, to our communities. If we're an educator, whatever role we have, we can take that and bring out the best in ourselves through having that vision and through to others as well. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you. I'd like to also thank our listeners and our great team who work behind the scenes to bring mind and soul matters to you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember to click on subscribe on your preferred podcast app and share with friends. For any comments or feedback, please email mindandsoulmatters at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Join me next month as I'll be speaking with oncologist Dr. Kynan Feeney as he shares his insights and experiences of walking side by side with terminally ill patients. I look forward to your company then on Mind and Soul Matters.